So ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure for Mrs. Rogers and me to once again be with the Academy. In fact, uh, selfishly, I'd say that uh, we make this an annual pilgrimage because we always return to Belgium, buoyed by the confirmation of the talent that exists among our youth. Now, I wish to, at the outset, uh, somewhat uh, undergird or perhaps extend some of the comments that Attorney General Violet uh, has made you. Your past performance uh, has demonstrated one thing, and that is the high potential that you have for great service for whatever you do. But uh, just as a composer, Irving Berlin, said, the difficulty about success is you have to keep on being a success. And uh, obviously that's up to you, as uh, Attorney General Violet stated, whether or not to exploit your talents and whether or not you live up to that potential. But I doubt that there's any here who would conceive that they might be one who would end up becoming a person whose bright future is in the past. Now, a further extension of what Attorney General Violet said, uh, if one reviews the biographical material of the honorees over the past five years, or has listened to them, uh, they have revealed qualities which appear consistently. And I commend those qualities to you no matter what you decide to do. First, tenacity and persistence, a drive to succeed, not letting obstacles keep them from success. Second, courage, thriving on adversity, ready to take the risks as described previously. Ingenuity, seeking better approaches, not being satisfied with the status quo. A sense of humor. You have to have it no matter what you do. The human touch. Understanding the fellow man and supporting the fellow man and fellow woman. A sense of humility. Sure, you'll find confidence among the honorees, but you won't find a cockiness. And you'll find that they're not intolerant with those who are less endowed than they happen to be. They remember their roots. They keep in touch with those who've assisted, who've helped along the way. And finally, trustworthiness. Their word is their bond. They know that they can be trusted, and others do as well. And they set high moral standards for themselves, and they meet those standards. Now let me uh, turn to a few personal comments. Because what uh, most of you here don't realize is that it's my privilege to serve you. I serve you and millions just like you on both sides of the Atlantic. You see, the command with which I'm associated has 13 nations of the 16 in NATO that contribute commit forces to that command, a command that extends from 
northern Norway to eastern Turkey. And the mission of that command is to put the military factor in the equation which will deter, which will prevent war and prevent intimidation in the shadow of military might from the other side. Now, if we're successful, not one of you will be required to pick up a weapon for the defense of the West and Europe. You can continue on with your creativeness and your growth in a nation whose ideals and whose values and principles and way of life will be sustained. But if we fail in our mission and war should come, then just let me tell you as one who's been there, you only have to be in combat for five minutes to realize it's a waste and a folly and a stupid way to do business among nations. So we must... So we must continue to find ways through dialogue, negotiation, strength on our part, so that we do not fail. What we're all searching for, I think, is a future in which we maintain peace with our freedom intact, with greater stability on the international scene, and with reduced and balanced levels of forces of all categories. I think everyone could agree that that's the future we want. I happen to believe that the only way we can achieve that future is following the path that leads to Geneva and Vienna and our being successful in the negotiation of arms accords. If we're going to be successful, we must provide incentives to the Soviets to negotiate seriously, to understand that she cannot achieve her goals through propaganda, disinformation, pressure, or other means, but only at the negotiating table. So I submit that uh, we have to understand the world as it is and not as it would like to be, as we would like it to be. And as a consequence, I do not believe that simplicit, simplistic, wishful thinking will provide us the strength which is the only thing the Soviet Union has respected for the past 70 years. <laughs> Complacency will not provide that strength. Neither will equivocation, weakness, indecisiveness. And taking the world as it is, in the nuclear era, in this last quarter of the 20th century, we must understand that there are paradoxes with which we must deal, paradoxes which are difficult to explain to our people and tough to understand. For example, we must arm in certain areas, selectively and judiciously, if we're to be successful at the negotiating table, so that we can disarm in the future. Tough paradox to get across. A corollary of that is that we, as 
members of the Atlantic Alliance, we the people must be prepared to make sacrifices for security arrangements now so that we can be successful in achieving arms accords so that in the future with reduced and levels reduced and balanced levels of forces we won't have to sacrifice so much and another paradox is that we peace-loving nations must create the impression that if attacked aggressed against we will utilize every quiver correct correction every arrow in our quiver in order to maintain our security our values and our way of life those are difficult paradoxes and finally to you young men and women as you prepare yourself for, for your contribution uh, to the future of this world I would su suggest a few things one keep in close touch with your God whatever his sex may be <laughs> keep your enthusiasm question and challenge the status quo don't be tethered to your biogra biography don't be a captive don't be slay a slave to your past you see there's a great big wonderful world out there that is just fraught with opportunities waiting for you to appear no matter what your profession no matter in what area you de deal so i say to yourself to you prepare yourselves well to get out there and grab those opportunities and as you do you go with the best wishes for good success happiness and good fortune from all of us who have preceded you thank you very much I'm interested in, and in, in you touched on arms limitation and arms talks. I'm interested in your views on the possibility of the Soviets requiring us to negotiate on systems that haven't been developed, specifically Reagan's uh, Star Wars policies. How feasible is it for them to want us to negotiate with systems and technologies that haven't been developed or tested yet, or is this just confusing the issue? I personally believe that it is not very feasible uh, for us to offer that in response to the Soviets because the research is going to continue in laboratories in universities around the world whether or not we like it and to verify whether or not that research is uh, is proceeding you see it would be impossible uh, secondly the uh, ABM treaty does permit this research in fact, what people generally don't realize is that when the ABM Treaty was signed in 1972, the U.S. Army was directed to continue the research in ballistic defense, in ballistic missile defense, and be prepared to build prototypes if you think uh, they have some value for the future, some potential. And some of you may recall that about 18 months, two years ago, there was an ICBM launched from the West Coast, and outside the atmosphere, it was intercepted by another missile. A bullet hit a bullet. That was all the result of that research that the Army conducted. So it's been going on since 1972. 
So I, one, I think it would be uh, improper for the U.S. to give up that. Uh, two, I don't think it's feasible. Three, it's, it's not verifiable, in my opinion. Please. General, there's a lot of resistance in Europe and Germany to our having our forces and arms there. Do you see a way of maintaining NATO without alienating large parts of the citizens of Europe? The, uh, what you see uh, on your television tubes is the objection of about somewhere between 7 and 10 percent of West Europeans who are uh, anti-U.S., anti-U.S. forces deployed in Western Europe, not the majority of the forces. You'll find the polls, even in nations such as Denmark, will support U.S. forces being in Western Europe. In fact, they understand several things. One, it would be disastrous, at least in my opinion and in many opinions there, to withdraw the U.S. forces from Western Europe because, first, our vital interests, I think, are inextricably linked in Western Europe with those of our allies. Secondly, it would unravel the alliance. And third, it would move the Soviets more quickly down the road towards the objective they've set for themselves in Western Europe, which is to intimidate and coerce without ever having to fire a shot. So we need to keep the forces there. The West Europeans want them there. If, in fact, we withdrew our forces, they would not do more. They would do even less out of a sense of futility. Thank you. General, with all due respect, isn't it rather Orwellian and possibly hypocritical of us to call the Amex missile a peacekeeper and talk of uh, arms talks while we're sneaking Persian II missiles in Europe on the name of a peace-loving God? Well, whatever we name it, uh, peacekeeper, major deterrent, whatever it may be, you see, really doesn't matter, in my opinion. It's the purpose for which we deploy that weapon that is important. And the purpose for which we deploy is deterrence. And uh, frankly, I am one who believes that when one looks at the spectrum of forces that we must have in order to deter, or should deterrence fail to defend appropriately, the strategic nuclear at the top, the theater nuclear, and the conventional, to my mind, the priority must go to the strategic nuclear forces to ensure that we retain the deterrent value of those forces vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. Otherwise, uh, we have lost the ultimate guarantor of our deterrent within NATO. Now, let me add a footnote to that and hasten, hasten to add that uh, we do not need, as a defensive alliance, to match the Soviet, uh, Soviet uh, Warsaw Pact one for one in any category of forces, by no means. In fact, at SHAPE, we have just finished a five-year study on nuclear weapons warhead requirement for the theater, and we have shown the nations that by 1995, if they take certain, certain steps in survivability of the wep weapon systems for deterrent purposes, as well as modernization, that we can reduce dramatically the number of warheads that we need in theater for deterrent purposes. And it is only a fraction of the warheads are needed by the, or the warheads that are that are maintained in the inventory of the Soviet Union. So we're moving in the direction you and I want to go, which is a reduction of these nuclear forces, but retain sufficient as a defensive alliance for deterrent purposes. 
The Soviet Union doesn't scare me near as much as the possibility of international terrorism. Small splinter groups seem to have a crippling effect on, on the American military and the American public as a whole. What steps can NATO and we take to try to prevent that kind of happening? Well, you have, you have touched on uh, that form of warfare that uh, is increasing and one which we find very difficult uh, to deal. Uh, what can we do in NATO? Uh, I find that at the political level in NATO, since nations believe that protection against terrorism is a national responsibility and prerogative, that there is a tendency not to coalesce and coordinate and collaborate on the issue of terrorism at the political level. That does not exist at the military level. We have a good flow of t information on terrorists that comes into shape from nations. We get that back to nations after we have collated, collated it and get it into the, into the command system. That is functioning well. I am pleased to see that although NATO political authorities are not doing it, the European community political authorities are now taking steps, the first steps, to try to coordinate a drive against terrorism. And that's what must be done. Uh, with respect to the targets of terrorists, uh, and you don't know when you're on a plane whether or not you are, but with respect to those who know that they're targets for terrorists, uh, we try to preach uh, awareness. Be aware of what you are, where you are, and what you're doing. Now, having said all of that, if you're going to stamp out terrorism uh, uh, through hijacking, you have to have the means at the, uh, at the uh, airports to check out the baggage, and passengers have to be prepared to undergo the inconvenience and the time that is necessary to do that. And I suspect that uh, Judge Webster, if he has an opportunity to speak today, well, could uh, better address that than I.